You're listening to the My Sister's Cancer podcast. I'm Kayla Crum, registered nurse and writer. And I'm Ella Beckett, social worker and cancer survivor. We're sisters on a mission to care for the cancer community through the sharing of real-life stories, a sprinkle of sass, and lots of support. Join us in a new kind of pity party. It's a pity so many of us carry the heavy burden of cancer alone. So let's make it a party and carry it together. Welcome back to My Sister's Cancer. I am your co-host, Kayla Crum, and I get the pleasure of introducing to you our very first guest today. So we've been putting out a call for guests for a little while, and we had two people respond, and we first thought we would put them both in one episode, but they were so generous with their stories and their time that we actually decided to give each of them their own episode. So today you'll hear from our first guest, Jack Foster. He's going to share his family's story and how that connects to our mission of making siblings feel seen and heard during family tragedy and difficulty. And then next week, you'll get to hear from Trish, who currently has a son going through cancer treatment and about her her family's experience as she also has a daughter who's going alongside of him through this process. I do want you to know that today's discussion will include conversations about mental health struggles and suicide. So if that is not a good topic for you right now, please go ahead and skip this one. I will let Jack tell you about himself. You'll hear his story in the beginning, and then at the end we have a bit of a discussion about the nature of siblings and parenthood and why this is all so difficult and so worth paying attention to. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, uh, my name is Jack Foster. Uh, I live in the greater Boston area. You came to my attention, I get NPR, and I, I, I read it, I saw your story, and it really resonated with me because I saw uh, how my son, how this affected him. Uh, it wasn't a sibling with cancer, it was uh, a mother with cancer, but also a sibling with severe mental illness. And it was like intersection of perfect storm for him. So back when he was in fifth grade and my daughter was in seventh, my wife was diagnosed with uh, stage four breast cancer, which morphed into thyroid cancer, which morphed into um, lymphoma, and then into bone cancer. Uh, it all happened really in a very quick, short period of time. It acted very quickly. Uh, she had a couple surgeries. They got her into chemotherapy right away, a very strong chemotherapy. They said, yeah, no choice. It's the strongest they could give her. They said, because, you know, you're, you're fighting for your life at this point in time. <clears throat> All the kids right away. Reed was still a little young. My son, my daughter at seventh grade, very tech savvy, of course, so we can get all the information and, you know, she sees what's going on. So we started to move forward. It became very time consuming, you know, having to help my wife. We went to the doctors probably at least four or five times a week. Chemotherapy. So as, at the end, it turned out she had six surgeries, over 50 chemotherapy treatments and a year of radiation. Uh, this was all drawn out over about three or four years. And I, you know, I kind of got caught up in the situation where I had to take care of my wife. We kept moving forward and as time went, um, I think they saw, you know, some very traumatic images of my wife when she wasn't very well. There was a couple times there, you know, she was in intensive care. There was a time here at home and luckily on this one weekend, they weren't here and I'm glad they weren't. She almost died here at home. So moving forward, 
I figured, you know, maybe they should get into some type of counseling. Might benefit them just to see where they're at. Uh, my daughter was very reluctant to go, which makes sense now. At the time, I, didn't. I think she realized she had some things that she was battling internally. And uh, son, you know, he went and after you know going to you know some uh, sessions, you know, it was reported by the the doctor that Reed was in a good place. He had a full understanding of what was going on. His emotional IQ was very good, and uh, he was doing a good job. I mean, he was very close with his mom. And for for a boy that young to go and spend a full day with his mom in chemotherapy and lay in bed with her, that's her, and that's your mother. So time's moving on, and my wife was a uh, my wife was outstanding through the whole process. If she could be at the dinner table, she would come down. I take a wing back chair, wrap her in blankets, and she'd be, try to be there every night to be present. You know, she'd still try to get go to the kids' events, and you know, she everybody would stare because have hair. She lost all her eyelashes and eyebrows. You know, but the kids handled that well. They always did a good job with that. And uh, so as time went along, my daughter was now in a pretty exclusive prep school. She was a good athlete, very good student, and she had a, a total mental breakdown. She ended up in the intensive care uh, unit at Children's Hospital in Boston. Uh, she attempted on her life. It was kind of 50-50. They said it was really touch and go. They weren't sure what's going to happen. On that night... It was very hard. My wife and I were at the hospital. I looked at the clock. It's 5.30. Reed's home alone. He had no idea what was going on because I was at the emergency room with my daughter, and they said, she's dying. They called my wife and said, you have to get in here now. So she just came. And, you know, the afterthought of it, the things that you don't think of, like, oh, my God. I said, get home by himself. Well, Reed was pretty independent, pretty confident young kid. Uh but, uh, you know, and this is what, you, this is the things that you overlook is how you laser focus on the needs at hand um, that were almost forgot about our other child. <laughs> and so uh, this became the perfect intersection of my wife being sick and my daughter um, developing into severe, severe mental illness. Uh, this went on for 10 years. She continued. Uh, Kedju was able to mask this very well. She was very embarrassed that she was mentally ill. You didn't talk about that. But when she came home, that mask would come off. People wouldn't have known. If you talked to her, if you met her, you spoke four languages, very mathematically oriented. She was a very good athlete, um, all-league all hockey player a couple of years in a row, uh, and very driven. But we'd see that side of her at night where she wouldn't sleep. She'd be up all night. And... Sometimes just mumbling, sometimes screaming. Uh, very difficult. Reed's room was right next to hers, and this was going on, you know, for many years. Uh, during this time period, there was many there was hospitalizations, and what you try to normalize is when you look back on it, how traumatic that would be for Reed. Now we're going to visit Mackenzie. You go through about four layers of security doors, and there's bars on windows. It's very industrial. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's not the, they're not the most attractive places to be. It's very intimidating. There's kids in there screaming, you know, running around and, you know, we'd be able to take Mac with us and go outside on the grounds, you know, say if it was snowing, we'd bring some boots and a pair of pants for her and we'd go out, we'd bring the dogs and the kids would run around with the dogs and they'd have fun and they think, oh, isn't this wonderful? Like, it's how you normalize things and it's not, it's the most other normal thing, you know. We could go sit in a private area and have dinner, and then that day ends and you go home. And, you know, Reed would always pretty much go with us because McKenzie would ask, like, how's Reed doing? I'd like to see him. 
and I th- he always did. He never he never said no. But I think that was traumatic for him going to see, as like it was going to see his mom in the hospital. Now he's going to see his sister in a different type of hospital, which is even kind of scarier. Reed, during this time period, Reed was a good kid, and I think Kayla, into something that you had mentioned in one of the things that I read, like you become that good kid because you don't want to, you don't want any more issues or stress on the family. He was he was outstanding. He's just a good kid. Did his work. He played sports. Never became an issue. He really kind of flowed with the punches. So you don't even think to ask if there's something wrong. Mackenzie, she went through a really good period. She got some really good help. She went off to college. We never told a lot of people about Mackenzie because she was very proud and also extremely embarrassed. So kind of, I think Reed did the same thing. I think he never really told people out of respect for his sister. Um, Once Mac went away, it started to get more difficult. She started becoming more manic. Uh, She would come home. It was very difficult. The point that we, you know, he'd call me and say, I, I'm afraid right now being in the house with her. Um, and that's a difficult situation because she was, she, she was, she would get very manic and become very aggressive. And, and that's a terrible way to be when you're afraid of your own sister. And McKenzie always felt terrible after these episodes. She'd have no recollection. She'd be totally blacked out, no idea what happened. And obviously, it was never on purpose. It's just, she was, you know, she suffered greatly from mental illness. And that really affected Reed. Um, I think a lot when he's afraid of his own sister. Uh, she was triggered very, by, very much by holidays, especially Christmas, which always is the worst time of year. To this time, it's always a difficult time for us at Christmas because we came so in tune that Christmas was going to be terrible. We've gotten better at enjoying Christmas, but that's that's a terrible way for a young child to be growing up. That Christmas can't even be enjoyed because you know it is very difficult and. At the time, you don't think about, okay, well, just another day for us. We'll just move on. Um, so there were episodes like that, and there's one that sticks out in my mind. Uh, Mackenzie was home from school. Uh, she had been struggling, so we were trying to get her back on her feet a little bit. Uh, she was going into Boston to meet some friends, and um, that was it. So we was usually, he had hockey practice that night. He was usually home by 9. And it's 9.15, 9.30. He wasn't home, which was kind of weird. So we just kind of speculate. He went and met some friends. Uh, we get a call from a woman who says, are you Reed Foster's parents? And we're like, yes. She goes, well, he's at my house in Brookline, Mass., which is on the other side of Boston. And she goes, he's looking for an address, which is, which is the same address in Brooklyn, but there's the same address in Boston. He says he's looking for his sister because... Uh, she lost her phone, and he said his phone died. So he came to the door, and when I told him I had the wrong address, he goes, can you do me a favor? He goes, can you charge my phone? So he put it through the mail slot because she didn't trust him. <laughs> He's like the last person you suspect in the world. And finally, we got a hold of him, and uh, I was able to call police that were in the area. They located both of them. They brought them to the station. My wife and I drove in. They were able to get them. And I remember I was upset with Reed. And I said, why didn't you call me? And he goes, Dad, I'm, she called me. You know, she told she asked me not to tell. And that's how loyal he was, even though the relationship at this point was very fractured, very, it was a difficult relationship. And I always regret like that I got mad at him for that. But I was like, you know, <laughs> I would have went with you or, you know, you could have come home. I would have went, you know, because to put him in that situation, he's driving around Boston in an area he doesn't know, trying to find his sister. 
you know, then I'm getting mad at him. That doesn't help the situation. Reed's, like I said, no problems. He's a good kid. Uh, Mackenzie kind of pulls herself together. She finds a really good program, stays at university, then for another year to get another degree. Seems to be doing pretty well. Uh, she was home at one point in February, and she talked about the future, what she's looking at. She had some options that she was thinking of. Uh, so it was very positive for us, and she didn't show any signs because you'd always tell when she was not in the mania, even just the way she texted. And we didn't see that. She didn't show any of the signs because when she did, she knew that my wife and I would fly out there, kind of get it back in the feet, get on our feet, or get it to the clinic. She went to this woman's clinic. They were great. They, they were outstanding. The day she finished, she sent the, she put her, we're on speakerphone, we're all eating dinner. And she goes, I'm, uh, she goes, I finished. She goes, I'm going home to change. I'm going to meet some friends and we're going to go out. And then she texted us and said, uh, I'm all done. And we just, and then she was done with school. She committed suicide that night. Yeah. Uh, Reed was with us when we got the call. Uh, he was just home from his freshman year in college. Uh, it was, it was very devastating uh, for all of us. It wasn't until after that that Reed started to show some signs of things weren't great. You know, he didn't just sit like, even though the relationship was very difficult and trying at the end, you know, it's still his sister. And it, I think it had an, a, a big impact, negative impact on his life moving forward. We could start to see that a little bit more as he started to get into college, a little bit more that he was maybe having some struggles. He seemed a little bit more disengaged. But then again, never a problem, never, never trouble. So I think maybe he was, he was removed more from the situation. And I think maybe he thought about it more. And I don't, I can't say how many people he told or he didn't tell. I think he talked to a lot of people about it. And I think he kept that bottled up for a long time. The, the two faces of these types of diseases, cancer, people like, rah, rah, let's put shirts on. We'll do a module. Not the don't say, ooh, like nobody wants yeah. to talk about it. So, you know, he says, you know, it, it's two different messages he's getting. You know, it's okay uh, to support cancer, but mental health means, you know, you're crazy, you know, you're off, something's wrong. And I think it's very difficult difficult to process as an adult. I couldn't imagine trying to process when you still have a young developing mind and how to handle all of this. He ended up, right before he finished school, he got a job and he started transitioning and um, then he, he talked to us about my wife and I, and he says, I need some help. And we never kind of really thought of them. We saw, again, looking back, you see signs, and you see signs, but at the time they don't, the, the, the big picture seems good. It's the little signs that you feel the time that you look back that you beat yourself up on. And we started to see little signs, but I'm, I was so glad when he was able to come to us and talk to us and we were able to get him in line with the therapist. He's been with her for a couple of years now. And I think... He's making progress. He has a um, long-time girlfriend of a few years now. He's intent, and I'm happy. I just pray every day, you know, just let him find some happiness in his life, some stability and happiness. I used to pray for, for Mackenzie for happiness, and once I realized that wasn't going to be attainable, I used to say just stability, just just let him be stable. And I was afraid seeing him free for a little bit, but now I've seen him. He's in a good place. He's very involved. Uh, he works hard. I think he's in a good place. So I think it's okay. Like, I think he's stable. You know, now let's, you know, I hope he just finds happiness. He, because he what robbed of his, his youth. He really was. And I think the, at the end of the day, the lesson here being you have to deal with what's in front of you. 
it's the most important. It's triaging. I guess that's the biggest issue here, and that's what you do. And all those uh, periphery, tertiary, secondary things, you kind of just keep going forward and go past those. And, you know, you know, as a parent, I'll always feel bad about that. But, you know, it was out of my control. I had to do what I had to do. I keep everything together and still work. And, uh, you know, so I take, take care, of, taking care of my dad at the time. It was a lot, but you still feel bad. And, he, you know, he definitely didn't deserve that. But he never complained. He just took it in and internalized it all, which was, you know, in retrospect, I feel bad that he did that. You know, I think he did it for his own reasons. Like you said, Kayla, um, you don't want to create more issues. You want to focus on hand of what's important at the time. And that, like, for him to realize that at a young age, uh, it, it's pretty outstanding to take that on because he could have reacted out. He could have easily gone down a different path and you know, he, didn't. he stayed on course. But, uh, you know, like I was saying, I think you, you take care of what's in front of you at at the time, because you know you do what you got to do, and then you look back and you self-critique, and a lot of self-critiquing going on. <laughs> you know, very similar. So when I saw your thing, it really resonated with me. I said, "That's this, this is truth. This is no lie," and you know, it definitely happens because I saw it. You know, it's so uh, kind of have a first front row seat to what you have gone through and what Ellis, what you went through, you also. I, I go around and talk about mental illness and suicidal tendencies, and I, I always say, if I can help one person, I've done my job. If I can keep one family, go through a tragedy I've gone through in my life, it, it's time well spent. But, you know, I say, I'm going to make you laugh, I'm going to make you cry. It's a hard story, but it's real. For me, it's it's like a cleansing, almost. Oh, well, thank you. I really appreciate you sharing so much of your story and that your son gave his permission to for you to share a little bit about him. That's That sounds like a long path of a lot of pain. And I mean, I'm sure you yourself, I mean, you were carrying so much. So I get how you're saying you're always going to wrestle with guilt and such. But I hope you also know, like you said, you know, it's triage and you just were trying to keep your head above water. So I hope that you know, hearing your story, maybe someone listening is like that college age read or something like the kid who maybe could vocalize that they need help. Right. So I'm so glad he was able to come to you. And I hope that if there's siblings out there listening to this, you know, this isn't to make the parents feel bad, but it's to make the siblings maybe reach out for help sooner. Or if a parent does have the capacity, like it sounds like you got your kids in therapy um, when your wife was sick, and that was probably a great building block for later for Reed to ask for help too. So, well, thank you. But that was at a that was a younger age. In retrospect, I probably would have went down that road again. As kids get older, I think it almost gets harder, right? Because like when Ella got sick, we were both in college, and that's sort of that gray area where you're trying to become an adult, but you're still a kid. And it's it's not like your parent can just be like, all right, I signed you up for therapy and you're going. It's a little more gray than that. So that gets tricky as kids get older, for sure. It is. And again, so what you're doing here, though, too, it's it's not just college-age kids. It's younger kids. If a parent can become aware, if there's a, a sibling that is sick, um, you know, it's okay to sit down and talk to your kids. And 
know, this is that therapy was at the very beginning of all this too. <laughs> you know, it, it got worse and worse. And uh, at that point in time, I, I, I probably rationalized, well, I already got the blessing of the therapist, reads emotional IQs high. He's very intuitive what's going on, but so many other things piled on top. And I kept moving forward. So um, with this platform, I hope if it was a parent listening or a sibling, you know, who knows, a cousin, anybody that's important in your life. And it's, it's okay to feel bad. It's okay to feel like kind of being left out of a picture or want to help, you know. But, uh, you know, a lot of times at that age, you don't know what the answers are. Like, you don't know how to conduct yourself. So the only way you do is to think of, like, don't be a problem. <laughs> you know, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, we hope that our podcast and stories like yours help people like siblings understand that they're experience is valid too right it's not just a person with the illness it's for sure also the family affected 100 percent. and it's not you know you can't discount those feelings if someone came came to me when he was 14 and said that i would have said oh you're fine leave it alone you know the typical old Irish cat wants everything oh you're fine you know i kind of wish he had but i also understand why he didn't yeah, and I think that one thing that surprised us that we've mentioned on the podcast before is how almost delayed or like later some of that mental health or like processing had to happen for us. Like when you're in the in the moment, you're kind of just trying to get through, right? Um, and then it's in the years after sometimes as you're rebuilding that you really start wrestling with your own feelings sometimes. You know, in, you know what it is too, uh, I think about this often, um, we had a lot of good memories as a family. Um, even when even when Mackenzie was still like, you know, dealing with mental illness, we still had a lot of great times. But you don't remember because good easy, good hap. Um, you remember bad because bad takes efforts. Bad bad's you have to address bad and get to, it's a lot of effort. Like what what's our next move? Are we going to the hospital? What can we do? What resources are available? How am I going to deal with this? You know, mm-hmm. do I have to take my wife to the emergency room. And those are the things you remember because they leave scars. Yeah, you know, I always say happy that it leaves scars. <laughs> happy just happens, and you don't realize happy. Happy is easy. You forget about it. it's those scars that you have that that you remember, and and that's unfortunate because also sometimes there's some guilt there. It's like man. We had a lot of good times, and you know there was a lot of happiness there too. There was a lot, a lot of really good things too. I, I just have to work and dig them up. You know, over there, and I'm sure you guys had a lot of good times too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think our brains, on like a survival level, are trained. They're going to remember the bad, right, to try to protect us in the future. But there is that good if you can try to dig back for it, for sure. Yeah, and I appreciated what you said about the hidden burden of mental illness because that's for sure true with the cancer and the T-shirts and the 5Ks and it's like it's this big thing that you're allowed to sort of talk about. Um, And it wasn't always that way. I think 50 years ago, cancer was much more of a taboo. But, um, you know, I hope that we're working towards erasing the taboo around mental health too. But it, I know we have a long way to go still. And It was a um, stigma that really, mm-hmm. keeping that in, it really was. Like, 
to be labeled. And it's so much better now than it was. Even a few, a couple of, there's a couple of years, you know, it's, it's gotten so much better. There's so many more resources. It's out there. It's, people are more open that mental health issues, especially now since COVID. I think there's a lot of, you know, I think there's a lot of adversely affected young people since then. There, there's more resources, thank goodness. But, you know, it's, uh, I've done my, I've tried to, you know, do some things, raise awareness uh, about mental health. Um, you know, hopefully every little bit counts and again, it help one person. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're doing the right thing. I think you guys would probably help more than one person. So, <laughs> Well, I really appreciate your time and your story. Is there anything else you wanted to share with our audience before we sign off? No, just uh, Ella, congratulations to you. That's awesome. I'm happy. Uh, Kayla, thank you for the opportunity um, to come on because I, I do like, I don't like telling the story. But I don't mind telling either because if we can help somebody, and this is a good platform, it's a different type of platform. But honestly, as soon as I read that, I was like, oh man, this is so true. <laughs> you know, you can't discount this, not at all. And I never heard anything about this siblings, you know, of, of ones that have cancer. And I'm like, what a great idea. Good for you guys. Well, thank you so much. And yes. yeah, we really appreciate your sure. vulnerability. <laughs> I know it's hard, but it, like you said, it's worth it. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Well, thank you very much. Thanks again. 